Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. Every week on this show, I cover topics relating to building and growing startups using an ambitious approach that's also sane and that allows us to be human beings and have relationships and hopefully not burn ourselves out. This week's episode feels like it's going to be one of my favorite episodes in a long time. It's a conversation with myself and Jordan Gall, the founder of Carthook, and he and I dig into the six stages of SaaS growth. And what we do is we compare our journeys one-to-one between growing Drip and growing Carthook. And what's interesting is that we took different paths to get there. He raised money, we didn't. And yet there are so many parallels between the two journeys and the stages line up shockingly well in terms of MRR ranges of pre-launch to product market fit to escape velocity. And I was struck by A, some of the parallels and B, some of the, you know, some of the deviations. And when we started, I figured it would be a normal length episode. We wound up chatting for almost an hour and 15 minutes. And so I've broken this up into a part one and a part two. Part one is what you're listening to today. And then part two will go live on Thursday. I would kick it to next week, but of course, episode 500 is next week, and I've been planning for that for several weeks. So we're just going to do a two for this week. I didn't want to drop a 70-minute episode in your feed today, but we cover the first few stages of SaaS growth in this episode. And what's interesting is I was going to call it the six stages of SaaS growth, but you'll hear me towards the end realize, you know, these aren't the only six stages. There are stages after this. So I have the parenthetical, the first six stages of SaaS growth as defined and discussed in the conversation you're about to hear. Little background on Jordan in case you haven't heard of him before. He started Carthook, which was cart abandonment software and became a checkout replacement solution for Shopify. It's doing several million dollars a year in ARR. Jordan has been on Startups for the Rest of Us four or five times answering listener questions, walking through his journey. He's just a founder in the space. He's come to several microconfs. He's spoken at multiple microconfs and he's executing well and, and doing what a lo- I think a lot of us are trying to achieve. He's done a really good job executing over the last six plus years as he's grown Carthook and, you know, that time flies quickly. He's also the co-host of the Bootstrapped Web Podcast, so you may have heard him on there. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Jordan Gall, thanks for coming back on the show, man. Absolutely. Great to be here. It's always a pleasure. I'm really stoked to be talking through our journeys, our entrepreneurial journeys, and, and looking at these six stages of building and growing SaaS. And what's a trip, what I like about this is, I floated this idea to you, like, would you be interested in coming on to talk about your journey? Because you've you've just made it so far, so quickly. And I know it probably doesn't feel that way, but I was thinking back to growing Drip, and it was like, there were some pretty distinct stages. There was the pre-launch and the post-launch and trying to find product market fit and all these things. And I was, I was wondering if ours would at all match up. And when I typed mine out in an email, I shot them over and was like, how do these match up with what you have? It's like, it's pretty close. Like the revenue numbers are not exact, but but the general headspace and what you're trying to do at these stages, at least at, in this N of two, like is shockingly overlapping. Yes. Uh, I think because we both started at zero, we were forced into going through these individual stages and it is really different from stage to stage. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to go back into it. I'm a little worried about all the memories and emotion that it'll bring up because it's it's been a hell of a ride, a lot of it good and plenty of challenges. 
I'm wondering how much PTSD this is going to bring up for either of us. It's as you said, like, of course, there are some great memories. And and I can reminisce and say, oh, man, remember the good old days? Remember when it was just two of us doing this thing? But you know what? It was super stressful when it was just two of us because we didn't know if we were building anything people wanted, you know, and it was six months of just grinding it out with no market validation and all that. So I think it's easy to romanticize any of these stages. Yeah, it's also easy to to forget how far you've come. So Rock and I had a moment the other day. Rock's my uh, my CTO and really like my, my co-founder at this point. We're really partners. He runs the tech team. I run the rest. And we had a moment because we hit 100x from the time he joined. And so we we were like, you know what? Let's take a little time out and get on a Zoom and like have a drink and like have some laughs because we just keep going through these milestones and there's so much to worry about and think about. We It's tough to even look back at at what we've done. Yeah. And that's, well, I'm glad you guys took that time. That was something I was not good at was celebrating the the wins and celebrating the transition. And oftentimes even realizing we were making the transition from one stage to the next. And it, it was Sherry, my wife, who encouraged me to slow down and be like, you realize you just built a million dollar business. You know, like the, you know, the day that we crossed 83, 333. And it was like, yeah, wow, that really is a something that I've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah. And, and, and they change. So recently this week, I I had a new milestone. We closed our biggest deal ever, and I never talked to the prospect at all. Wow. Right? So the the team did everything. And and I think we'll get into these stages and and the stage that we're in now. Yeah, but let's let's get there. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah, so six stages. And I've named each of these stages because I've what I've noticed is I've already, and and a lot of folks already use terminology around this, like pre-launch and post-launch and pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. But... I kind of tapping into to your and my later experience have a couple stages that I think are cool to define and think about because I think if you do get into the multiple millions of dollars that you will enter those. So we'll get to those in a bit. But pre-launch, we're going to start there. When I think of, of pre-launch for Drip specifically, I mean, obviously I could tell a bunch of stories of pre-launching different, different stuff, but I, I think we'll, I'll stick to Drip for my examples here and obviously you'll stick to Cardhook. Pre-launch for me was a bunch of customer development and it was a bunch of validation. That was even pre-building, right? It was going out. I had 17 email threads going with founders saying, hey, if we build this, would you pay this much for it? Got about 10 or 11 people said, yes, I would at least try it out. And then for me, it was a lot of marketing as I had a, a contractor, a contract developer who was building into the background first halftime, and then he switched over to full-time. Now, that contractor is, is a guy that a lot of folks may know. His name is Derek Reimer. But at the time, he was just you know a 1099. He was a friend of mine who wrote Ruby, and he was a good developer. And I, I didn't want to... This was going to be really the first app that I had built that I wasn't going to write any code on. And it was partially an intentional decision to pick a language I didn't know. And so my memory of that was me and this contractor both working remote and we would chat on the phone once or twice a week and we had met once to basically spec out what the original version of Drip was going to be. And then I was thinking about that. I was building the marketing list. I was going on podcasts. I was running some Facebook ads to landing pages to test value propositions. I mean, all the, all the smoke test stuff. And then I was also doing, you know, some microconf stuff and speaking and the podcast. So I, I was staying busy, but it was very much one of many irons in the fire that I had going on. So I'm curious to hear how your experience pre-launch compares to that. So I think similar in that your real pre-launch started years prior what allowed you to really hit the ground running was years of work prior. And yeah, same for me. I ran an e-commerce company with my brothers several years prior to starting Cardhook. So 
my customer development was my own experience. And so my, my pre-launch was consumed with figuring out how do I get a product built if I am not technical myself? And so going through all these different options, talking to agencies, looking for freelancers, looking for employees, looking for co-founders, I just went through all these different options. So I knew the product that I wanted to build. It was a card abandonment app. It was something similar to what I used as a merchant. I knew it made me money and didn't cost too much. The ROI was great. I knew I wanted to build something that specifically generated new revenue for merchants so I could price based on a percentage of revenue. So I, I had all that. And my pre-launch challenge was, how do I get someone to build this? And as often happens, it was preparation plus luck. And the luck for me came in the form of bumping into an old family friend of my wife's. We were doing our 18-month kind of excursion where we lived in a different city for a month or two to figure out where we wanted to move. And while we were in San Francisco, I bumped into the younger brother of one of my wife's friends from back, back in Connecticut at the laundromat. And I had just known him through the years as like the, the computer whiz kid. And it was just, just a coincidence. We ran into each other and then we started having coffee. And then it turned out that he had been doing a bunch of freelance work and he really wanted to get into basically to learn more on the business side. And we just had this match between, well, I want something built and, and he wanted to build something. And that's, that's what happened. I gave him a piece of the company, basically took three months off from freelancing and built the first version of the product and then handed the baton over to me to start selling. So that, that was my version of pre-launch. Wow, younger brother of a friend of a sister in a laundromat sounds like you. It sounds like you're making it up. Like this sounds ridiculous. Look, the his line item on the cap table will speak the truth. <laughs> that it's very real and it's there, and I, I hope it really works out for him. Yeah, what a trip. So a lot of questions for you, actually, because I haven't heard you talk much about this stage of your business. I've been involved as an investor. I guess I should have said that up front. Like I, I've invested a couple times in a couple rounds in Carthook. So I've been along on the journey with you, but I wasn't involved yet at this point. And I'm wondering, like, did you validate this idea or did it, I'm imagining this already existed at the time. And why did you decide to build something that already existed if that was the case? Well, I, I liked the low risk approach of that. I used to use a product just like this and it was a terrible product and it made me money. And it, when I looked at software ideas after selling the e-commerce business, what I did was I looked through our credit card statements and in the e-commerce business, where were we spending our money? And I just identified that app as really high value and really low quality. And so what I said was, okay, what if I build a better version of that, right? At this point in time, I don't really have the intention to build a company. My intention is how do I make 10 grand a month so I can do whatever I want? And I don't, I don't know where the software thing's going to go, but I like the idea of recurring revenue. Right. Lifestyle business. Right, exactly. So I wasn't full-time on it. I was just kind of exploring. I had worked in a previous business where I was a partner that had this quirk. It generated revenue about a year after doing the work. And so I had about a year of income without doing any work. And that's when I just said, okay, I need to, I just need to replace this income so I can maintain this, this freedom to explore. And so I wanted specifically low risk. I didn't want to come up with something new and not know if it was going to be wanted by the market. So I did, had my own validation. And then what I did really as part of being able to convince Charlie, the developer that joined me, 
as the original co-founder, I did the legwork to show him that he wasn't going to waste three months of his time. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, that was the big thing to convince him. I said, look, I'm the business person. I'm not just talking. I used to be a merchant and I've been emailing. I, I did the cold email thing, you know, 30 different people a day. And I had an inbox full of people saying, yeah, that's interesting. I, I would be interested in looking at that. I, I would pay for that. And that's such, you know, we get emails at the podcast and I get just emails to me personally about, hey, how do I find a, a developer, a technical co-founder if I'm not technical? And I always say you prove your worth as that as that non-developer side. You prove that you can market and you can make sales and that you will hustle and you will do work alongside that developer so that they're not working for three months, like you're saying, while you're whatever, sitting around doing your thing. And then suddenly you're going to magically market this thing. Like most people aren't able to do that. I didn't know that. And I was, my next question was going to be, how did you convince him to do it? And so I love that, that you basically lived that, you know, you showed him that it was worth it and that you could potentially build it. It's interesting. So you thought that you could build something similar, but just better because the UX, the user experience of the other one wasn't good. Yeah, the design was horrible. The UX was horrible. The onboarding was terrible. It was it was a bad piece of software, but it made me three or four grand every single month. And I paid them 79 bucks a month. I would never cancel it because it kept making me money. And I basically said, I want to be that guy. That was where I landed. I had a few other ideas, but yeah, so that's that's my pre-launch. You know, what's cool is the parallel of when I launched Drip, and I say I, because at that time it really was, I viewed it as another one of my apps, rather as we get later on, it's we, because it was Derek and I, you know, and then as co-founders, and then it was a team of people. But when I launched Drip, I absolutely viewed it as a lifestyle business. Similar to you, I was thinking, can I, no, I had already grown Hittail to about 25 or 30K a month. So that wasn't super interesting to me anymore. I wanted it to be bigger, but I, I didn't expect it to grow as quickly as it did from the start. Once we got into it a little bit, I did, but I was really mostly thinking about it like you were just like, hey, I wonder if I can build a business that throws off a bunch of cash. And it's funny that we wound up going down similar, but different paths, I think. So let's talk about let's talk about post-launch. So for us with Drip, as we were working on this, it was from about obviously zero in MRR up to around like, so we, we built for about six months and then started a slow launch where I, I would launch to like 300 people on the list. I think the whole total list was like 3,400. So it's about 300 people every couple of weeks, get them in. We were trying to get onboarding set. We were trying to not churn everybody out. And by the end of that launch, we were between seven and $8,000 a month in MRR. And over the next six months, we were kind of flailing, trying to find product market fit because I was driving traffic. I was marketing it. I was doing all the things that I had done in the past that had worked and they weren't working. And churn was too high. Trial to paid was not great. It just wasn't working. So from about zero to around 10 or 12K, I view as this pre-product market fit stage, post-launch pre-product market fit. And for those, I mean, you've heard me say product market fit on the, on the podcast a bunch of times, but it's, I phrase it as I have like a text expander in my head of like product market fit equals you've built something people want and are willing to pay for. That's how I think about it. I don't even put in and are able to reach them at a, at scale and have a bunch of leads. Cause to me, that's escape velocity, which is like two steps from now. That's the stage I'm breaking it down into. But at this point it was me. And I believe Derek at that point, had said, hey, I'm looking, thinking of buying a house. I need a couple pay stubs, W-2, in order to buy a house. So we switched him over from 1099 to W-2. And I think he was making about, you know, about the same amount of money, but it was, it was more of an accounting thing. So at the time, I believe you know, Derek and I were like the, the two W-2 employees, in essence, you know, working on it. And it was still super scrappy. We had no office. Derek would come over to my house. There was a coupon on my property. And, and we would sit there and chat and map this stuff out and talk about what we were building next. And it was totally freewheeling. You know, it's just week to week, day to day. I was doing the email support for the first few months until we brought someone in. But 
that's kind of my post-launch pre-product market fit story. And I will add, it was perhaps, this was perhaps the hardest part because it was the mental game of not knowing if we were going to find product market fit. And it took us from November of 2013 till about, it started changing in May, but it really peaked in terms of like churn just plummeted, trial to paid like doubled, just, just every sign of product market fit you can imagine happened in like a 90 day span from May to August of 2014. And so depending on how you measure it, it was somewhere between six to nine months from launch to where, oh my gosh, the unit economics on this business all of a sudden are amazing. The ROI of dumping more leads into the top of this funnel is going to scale this thing. And that was the moment that I feel like that was product market fit. And that's that's stage three. So I won't go into there yet. But I'm curious to hear similarities and differences of your post-launch, you know, pre-product market fit stage. Well, look, good for you, because mine was an extended torture session of like 18 months, 12 months, I guess. It was not pretty. This stage, like really getting off the ground and launching and generating some revenue was really no fun. <laughs> it was so what happened was Charlie passed the baton over to me. So he built the product to a point where it's good enough. And now, okay, now let's start to sell it. I started with cold email and it worked. And I got it to 500 MRR, then 1,000, then 1,500. And then Charlie got the like offer of a lifetime for just his dream job. And it's like at 1,500 bucks a month, I had to just tell him, you, you have to take this job. I'm not going to let you stay with me. I'm not even doing it full time. It's making 1500 bucks a month. This is your dream job. You you have to do it. And and he agreed and he took the job and kind of committed to continuing to help nights and weekends. So then I was alone again and I was doing it half the time and didn't really know if it was going to go anywhere and was just filled with doubt on it. And I just kind of kept going. I figured out a cold email system that allowed me to, to grow faster. I had information from built with the guy got sent over to a VA and then they qualified. And then they, they sent those records over to another VA that loaded them up into the cold emailing software. And what got spit out of the process was scheduled demos for me. And then I would just do a few demos a day. And then we started to grow and that got to about 3000 bucks a month. And then a little bit more luck came my way. And so for me, like this first phase really ended when Adi Pinar, God bless him. We know Adi from the MicroConf community and just from the startup scene overall. He's a great guy. He built a company called Conversio that just recently got acquired by Campaign Monitor. Uh, and he's obviously from WooThemes and WooCommerce prior to that. So when Adi was starting his new company, Conversio, he emailed me and effectively offered like an acquisition slash partnership. He said, look, I think what you're doing with Cardhook is interesting. I have this thing going on. At the time, it was called Receiptful. And he said, what would you think about joining me? And I knew that it was too early to have any financial impact. But the conversation got me thinking. It made me perk up and take the opportunity more seriously with what I was doing. And by coincidence, I was in New York at the time and started telling some of my friends about this potential like partnership slash acquisition interest. And that's when my friends who all went into finance and made far more money than, than all of us said, why would you do that? It's so early. Why don't you just like take a few bucks from a few of us and, and really give it a go? That's what started the next chapter for me. Because when I entertained really taking money, I knew I needed a full-time technical co-founder. And that's when I found Ben Fisher. And that's when we teamed up and, and the business kind of changed trajectory. So that, that first phase was just 
12 months of doubt and pain and taking every credit card over the phone and just doing it that way until it got a little bit of interest. And then I used that interest to kind of parlay up into investor interest and then raise money. And, th and that's when the next stage started for me. That is crazy. That also another case of serendipity in essence, right? Of just a weird conflux of ADP and R asking you all that stuff and, and that getting you talking to some friends who decide to convince you to raise around. What's a trip is that's when at least the way I have it in my uh, Google spreadsheet that, tra that I track my angel investments, uh, I have September 2015 of writing the first check. And my memory is you were around 5k MRR at that time. So did you raise around? Yeah. yeah. And I probably told you this in the past, but like the reason this was pre drip exit for me. So I had some money, but I was not like in a place to be crazy with cash, right? I was still trying to grow drip. And so was honestly trying to conserve cash. But I had done a couple of angel investments prior to that. And one of the things that I liked about what you were doing, because we knew each other, because you had, I think you'd definitely done attendee talks. I don't know if you'd spoken at a microconf yet or not, but we had definitely hung out at microconfs. But the way that you executed, you just hustled. You had that the whole cold email system you explained to me at the time, and I was super impressed by that. The fact that you had scrapped as a non-developer founder to 5K MRR in SaaS, which I knew was is hard enough to do if you're the one writing the code and doing everything. And the other thing is the Bootstrap Web Podcast is I listen to you talk every week or most weeks, I guess, three weeks, three weeks out of the month. And I was like, this guy is so sharp. Like he just thinks about things in a way that I think makes sense. And I think show that it felt to me like you were going to be successful. It was literally a bet on you more than even abandoned cart. I was like, yeah, abandoned cart. Cool. I don't know the abandoned cart space. I don't know if there's 10 apps. I don't know e-commerce. But if you're telling me you think there's opportunity there, I've seen you execute on this. Like I'm going, I want to be involved in this. That was a big piece of it for me. Well, thank you for saying that, by the way. I think all of us have these serendipitous moments come through. What I got good at over the years was just identifying how to take one small little thing and just keep parlaying that up into bigger things. And that is a theme throughout the company, whether it's somebody, I mean, the way I found Ben Fisher, the co-founder is he signed up for my product and he just had a cool email address. And then I looked him up and he sounded like legit. And I got on the phone with him and then impressed him enough to join me as co-founder. So it was, again, a tiny little breadcrumb. And I think all of us are surrounded by these things and building up the radar on knowing, oh, I should pursue this little tiny thing because it might be something bigger. I, I think that's like a, I don't know if it's talent or skill or luck or some combination of them. And so I had said that post-launch pre-product market fit for me was the most painful, agonizing part of the journey. Do you share that sentiment or were there times later that have been... <laughs> have been worse. So two stages from now was was the worst for me. And I'll explain that. For, for me, stage one, uh, stage two, I guess, post-launch, just felt like an extended torture session that I had to go through on the way to the next thing. I, I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. I would love to skip it on any other companies in the future. It's just something that I had to just kind of deal with until we got somewhere better. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, the state of independent SaaS report that we did, or just look general on the internet and see revenue reports, most people don't make it to the next stage. So stage one was pre-launch, stage two is post-launch pre-product market fit, and stage three is product market fit. Again, built something people want and are willing to pay for. 
And for me with Drip, and keep in mind, I also had an advantage that I had an audience at this time. You know, I, I think that's a big part of what of what got me to 10 to 12K without having to do the hustle and, and send the cold email is that I was able to kind of lean on that audience for that initial kickstart. And so stage three, I have as a product market fit and the numbers that I wrote down, and this is starting to be from memory. So it, you got to give it a little fuzzy around the edges, but it's from about 12K MRR up to about 25K MRR. And that was me and two W2 employees. And that was, so it was me and Derek. And as we were going through this phase, this is when Derek and I started talking like, hey, you're kind of indispensable here. And Derek was starting to think about going off and doing his own thing because he's entrepreneurial. And so that's when we had to have that conversation about, hey, let's figure out a way to make, you know, make this work for everyone and, and make it worth your while basically to stick around. So you're not just, you don't feel like you're working a day job. And during that time, we hired a, a second developer and we were just building the product out. We were playing catch up, right? We were first had launched to try to compete. We were just going to be like an email capture thing and, and autoresponders. Then it's like, well, we're going to compete with MailChimp and AWeber. And then we realized that the real market with the with the real money in it was not that MailChimp's not a real market with real money, but but we could go up market and compete against the Infusionsofts. And at the time, it was Office Autopilot that later rebranded to Entreport. That's really not on most people's radar anymore. And then ActiveCampaign was just coming about. They had been, I believe, like white-labeled software, downloadable software. They were not really SaaS for that long before then. And we realized, wow, there's so much more money, the higher price points there. And so going this product market fit stage was from 12 to 25K. And we were building out the product. And I was just trying to find repeatable marketing channels that extended beyond my audience. Because I had, ex- I really had exhausted just the usual my things. You know, the con- I call it concentric circle marketing, right? Where it's like, first I'm going to talk to everyone who listens to me and my email list, Twitter, and podcast list, and the next one out is my friends' audiences. So I go on podcasts and I, I do that. And then the further out you get, it's like, well, can I make content and SEO work? Can I drive cold traffic from pay per click ads? Can I do webinars? Can, you know, and this was a very scrappy phase of just trying to find repeatable channels that drove repeatable traffic. Again, at about 25K, that's when I felt like we had started hitting our stride, which is stage four. And I won't go, I won't go into that yet. But I'm curious to hear how your product market fit, essentially 5 to 20K, how that went and how you think about it in retrospect. Yeah. And, and I remember when Drip launched the power of getting off the ground. I remember because I, I was in the struggle at that time. And I don't know about the timing, but may, I'm pretty sure we were under 10K in MRR. And to watch you get to 10K in MRR in like 60 days really showed the power of an audience. You know, And we still see that these days. We see my podcast co-host and friend, Brian Castle, launching something with an audience. We see Adam Wathen about, and Steve and how much value they give. And then whenever they launch a product, it, it's so much easier. I will remember that for the future. So for us, this stage, that 5 to 20K was marked, I guess, bookended with success at first and then failure toward the end of the stage. So right around 5K is when we raised some money and we raised friends and family money. It was like 275 grand. And that allowed us to go full time, focus on it and hire two engineers. So it was myself, Ben as co-founder and two engineers. Those two engineers are still with the company, by the way. One of them is Rock, who's the CTO. Uh, the other one is Jan, who is, is on infrastructure. So we built something actually worth paying for. We improved the card abandonment product. And then I went on a search for, for a flywheel. 
just something better than the cold email because as soon as we left the Volusion market, which is where I built my e-commerce business, and it was really easy to email the owner of the company, as soon as we left that market, cold email stopped working. And then we had to figure out a better way. And what we ended up figuring out was partnerships. And what we would do is we would do an integration with a platform, and then we would try to do some co-marketing. And we hit onto this perfect situation with a platform called CrateJoy. So CrateJoy was a brand new e-commerce company run by Amir, who used to work at Zynga, who's super smart. And they were, they were growing like crazy, full-on hyper-growth, just crazy. And every one of their merchants kept asking them for card abandonment email. And they didn't want to build it themselves. And I just kind of stuck my head out at, at just the right time and said, we will build it for you. And then you could just tell all your customers that they could use us and you don't have to worry about it. And he was like, that's exactly what we need to do. So we did the integration. And then what they did is they took us and just built us directly into their admin. So everybody that created a new account saw Cardhook right in front of them. And then a lot of people signed up. And that ended up being so critical to the whole life of the company, because as we started growing in this way, the failure bookend of this phase was really coming to terms with the fact that card abandonment was just not going to do it for us. The market started to get crowded. Everyone started to go cheaper. Our differentiator started to get worn away. Like our thing was that we captured the email as soon as it was typed into the field and only the larger, much more expensive solutions were doing it then. And then everyone else started doing it. So I just did not like the future of the company in card abandonment. And that's when we made the decision to build the second product. But we couldn't have done it without the flywheel, specifically from CrateJoy, because what it allowed us to do is spend six months building a new product while the revenue just kept growing anyway. You funded, you self-funded your, yourself out of revenues in essence. I remember the conversation where we talked on the phone and you said, I see this opportunity that's not card abandonment and I want to build a, a second product. And I was like, oh, shiny object syndrome. Yeah, I was like, you need to convince me every founder ever wants to build a new product. Like why, you know, but you, you convinced me. And by the end, I remember being like, well, there's my memory was, I was like, look, this is super risky. It's another product. You now have to go find product market fit again but you're mired in this every day and you're thinking about this, you know, 100 hours a week and this is where you want to go with it, then it, you got to trust your gut. This is that founder gut check moment. Yep. And it, it was it was very risky, but I pretend to be more risk loving than I really am. I always want to protect the downside. So in, in many ways, I'm risk averse, but I, I want the cake and to eat it too. So I want to take additional risk while also protecting the downside. And that's that's the situation I found myself in. When we said, at the very worst, this thing's just going to keep growing, but slowly because of the flywheel we've built. And so even if we take this risk, at worst, I pare everything down. It ends up as two people doing 20K and we can survive. But it was definitely a, a huge risk to take to build a second product with a team of four people and like 100 grand in the bank. And so you, you had this card abandonment app that was thrown off, let's say 20K a month, and you used it to build the second product. Do you want to tell folks like what that was and why you saw opportunity there? Why it was such a unique, there was timing involved in this. Yes, there was. That's right. Okay, so so here's what was happening. 
Everyone knows Shopify now and the incredible success story, rocket ship, like ridiculous performance that they've had, especially since going public. When we were in the e-commerce market, this is this is four years ago. So Shopify was becoming successful and being talked about, but it was very, it was not the clear, straightforward, obvious winner in the market. And what was happening was as Shopify got better at making it easy to launch a physical product business and the ecosystem around it of fulfillment and importing from China, all these things started coming together in such a way that made selling physical products almost as straightforward and hands-off as selling digital products. And what that did is it started to attract all the marketers that were traditionally in the digital marketing space, selling courses and eBooks. It started to attract them into the physical product world. It is much easier to sell a physical product than it is a digital one in many ways. You put a picture of it on the site, you write some copy around the benefits, you put a price, and then there's a buy button. It is much more straightforward than a digital book that explains how to do X, Y, or Z. And that started attracting people. And at the same time, ClickFunnels was, was exploding. And the reason ClickFunnels was exploding was because it was building products in the market of those traditional digital marketers, but it was showing them how to very easily build things that sell physical products. The problem with ClickFunnels was that it didn't have the infrastructure on the back end, like inventory and fulfillment and shipping. It just had a great system to just put up a landing page and be able to sell, most importantly, to sell with post-purchase upsells. And so what people were doing is they started selling physical products on ClickFunnels. They would find success, but then they would run into the issue of not having enough infrastructure to do fulfillment and shipping and so on. They were dealing with CSV exports and losing their minds. So then they went over to Shopify, which had a much better system for selling physical products. But when they did that, they lost a lot of the marketing strategy functionality around the checkout and post-purchase upsells. And so there was just this huge pool of marketers that wanted to sell on Shopify with the post-purchase upsell functionality. And that's what we saw as the opportunity. If we build post-purchase upsells and a customizable checkout for Shopify, all of these people that are currently on ClickFunnels and want to come over to Shopify will come over along with our ability to provide them what they want. So like that was the the moment right there in the market. And that was the right that was the right bet based on your growth since then. It's a trip and you no longer have the card abandonment functionality at all, right? That's right. We we sunset it from like the public eye, maybe six or six to 12 months ago. And we just left some of the merchants on that wanted to stay on. And it is amazing how long people will keep software around if it's making the money. We, we haven't touched the thing in three years, but we still have people paying us a hundred bucks a month because it keeps making the money. It's back to your very, your initial premise of I paid three or four grand a month or I made three or four grand a month from this software and I was never going to cancel it as a merchant. And that's, that's the thing. Sorry to break in here, but that is the end of part one. And to recap, Jordan and I talked through the pre-launch stage, the post-launch pre-product market fit stage, the product market fit stage, and part two that comes out in about 48 hours, we will cover the remaining stages of SaaS growth. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you then.